This episode of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike is brought to you by Dream Symbols, manufacturers of handmade, hand-hammered symbols at very affordable prices. So please follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for at Dream Symbols and check them out. This is tough. I've never had to do the intro over a quintuplet groove before. I can't quite find my footing. Oh, we've got a great episode for you guys. Episode 142 of the Modern Drummer Podcast. Once Mike and I get all caught up, then we're going to discuss the life and the career of the late, great Roy Burns. After that, Mike and I go down the polyrhythm rabbit hole in reference to Aaron Edgar's article in the June issue. In our gear review section, Mike talks about his impressions of the Roland TD-17. We get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Oh, and you're going to learn what CRI is. <clears throat> Pull it together. Pull Dawson. it together. Welcome Come to on. episode 142. So I'm going to try to restrain myself from mouse clicking. It's been driving some people crazy, but all of my notes are on my computer. I don't know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> Wait, have you been getting mouse clicking letters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> That's awesome. I, 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 We should actually stream this like on youtube so people can see but i'm i'm like a ninja over here i'm just like okay i have to get to my pick of the week but the mouse is on the table that the microphone's on so i know if i click it it's gonna be like gadoosh and so I'm, i have to be very careful but you're over there just crunching on pencils yeah and just I mean, going in because you have a job <laughs> yeah exact clicking pens exactly you got phones going off people are like you know, oh, yeah. Tommy Lee's on line two. Do not tell him to hold. I'm on. doing the podcast. <laughs> right. Did you just put the do not disturb on? It's on. It's at least I got that together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how are you, buddy? So you were you were on the West Coast. Yep. I was there all day Tuesday. So I flew out Monday night, stayed all day Tuesday, uh, hanging out at the Roland facility down in Commerce, which I didn't know was actually a place. Commerce, California. I had no idea. It's right. It's Los Angeles, essentially. Okay. And then um, I guess it's right on the border of L.A. and East L.A. I don't. I'm not really sure. But whatever. It was nice. And then flew back early Wednesday. So to me, I'm all discombobulated. It feels like Monday, but it's Thursday. Wow. <laughs> and look at you. You got your V drums shirt on, yeah, drinking they, the Kool Aid, feeling me good. Up. Free, free shirt and a free. You're pair either of drinking the Kool Aid or you're a drummer like me that doesn't want to do laundry. And it's like, well. Uh, that's how you know it's low laundry. I try to avoid drum gear shirts at all costs. But then every, but I have like two or three that are actually kind of cool. So if, if the laundry's running low, you'll see a tackle shirt, maybe a low, low boy shirt. There's a couple <laughs> that they, they put some effort into the fashion of it. I'm like, all right. Yeah. I'll just, no. For me, it was I'm emptying my overnight bag and this shirt was in there. So I'm wearing yep, it today. <laughs> totally. I get it. You're like, yeah, it's a black T-shirt. It's like every other shirt I own. Yeah. Uh, that's cool, man. Okay. So what can you talk about what was going on at the Roland party? Yeah. Yeah. So they were um, they were launching their new artist center, which is at the Roland facility, which is a nice, oh, wow. nice kind of showcase room where I guess artists can come in and mess around with kits and custom configurations or whatever they want to do. Try out all the gear. Really nice, nice kind of like a almost like a little recital room type thing with the stage and all that. So they were debuting that, and then they were also releasing their new TD twelve, no TD seventeen series drum kits, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But yep, the, that was the big product launch. So they brought in some okay. people, you know, from the press and the media and influencers to be there for the press event, which was 
Wednesday morning, Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning. <laughs> Not, <whatever. laughs> I don't even know what day it is. Out of boy, you're and doing then, great. Then they had a party that night where they, you know, a bunch of different, uh, you know, all rolling artists and drummers and industry people were there. So Luke Holland played, Jordan West played, um, Michael Shack played, and then cool. Vinny Cayuta played. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. On, on a on a V drum kit, <laughs> yeah. Apparently they get, got him a kit like a week ago, and he programmed his own presets and made his own loops and just what? did did the Vinny thing on a V drums kit for like twenty five minutes. Wow, how was it? Weird. It was weird. Okay, I'm going to yeah, admit yeah. it. I, was I weird. would assume it would be exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Luke Holland on a V drum kit. I get it. Like, I I love him on an acoustic kit, but I I get it. It, it. I can see him doing that, especially you know his friendship with Thomas Lang and Thomas mm-hmm. being such a huge ambassador for Roland. Uh, but Vinny on an electric kit, it's got to be like, did do we lose some of the Vinny-ness or the thunder or I, or was it? I don't know. Yeah. I wish I would have recorded some of it. It's bro. Hard. That was a sigh and a half. That was amazing. That is a sample. You guys need ringtones. Well, you know, get the Dawson. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you heard his solo album and you li- and you listened to like track three where it's just boom, gosh, for like five minutes straight? Yeah. yeah. You're like, wow, Vinny, what are you doing? And then it takes like right. six months. You're like, oh, this is genius. I kind of think it might have been one of those experiences where okay. you're like, man, he's just playing these weird timbale samples for like five minutes straight i don't know what the heck he's doing and like layering loops i don't i don't really know what he was doing it was interesting so i think if i would have had a chance to like record it and listen back like 10 years from now i'll be like damn that was genius but it was just it was just interesting to hear him do his thing on non-drum sounding patches it was really now kind of bizarre i saw a picture i think i saw a picture was keltner there Keltner was there. He was just there hanging out, just checking out okay. stuff. Because they also um, they also debuted like a big bass drum pad, like a twenty, yeah, it was like a twenty-two, twenty, or, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was just checking out that stuff. He's always That's cool. he's always curious. I mean, it's funny because he's kind of known for this kind of Americana, all natural thing. Sure. But he's been on the cutting edge of technology since the beginning. I think he played D drum electronics back in the early eighties. Keltner is one of those people that just he just does it all, but is so busy doing it all, no one really knows what he's doing. Yeah, right. And then and then and then you find out like I mean, there's just nothing. If you think like no, no, like the dude rocks, like he literally can rock out. Yeah. And you're like, well, then I'm sure he can't play brushes. And you're like, oh, you're way wrong. He's like actually a master of the art, and and it's like it never ends. You know, I would love to sit down with one of the guys at Yamaha, one of the guys at Roland, and just pick their brains about why are you making this stuff. Who are you making it for, and where are you trying to push us as an industry? Because I'm I'm always wondering, like a 20 inch electric or e bass drum. Are you trying to do that so that on a church stage it looks better? Like, what's the mindset behind it? Yeah. Are you doing I did, that I mean, because I, drummers I, requested? I, I oh, sat yeah. down and interviewed the developers of all the stuff, um, and those were kind of the conversations we had. So that was oh, okay. clearly the the bigger bass drum is for the people who are touring, like professionals if you're playing you know like if you're say you're with justin timberlake and he wants an all electronic thing you can at least have something that looks like a bass drum on stage okay Uh, okay but this new kit that you know we'll get to a little bit later is geared towards everybody like if you if you need some drums if you want just something to mess around with it's a great practice tool i mean it's 
is kind of going to clear some some pathways for people. I think, which is pretty. That's neat. cool, man. We still got to solve the the apartment flat situation. Stomping is our enemy. No, that's There's, impossible. Yeah, I think it's impossible. Because I mean, if your yeah. foot is hitting the floor, then your neighbors below you, no matter what you do, are going to complain. It's, yeah, I, I agree. Know, I think impossible. it's uh, and it sucks. They don't. You know, I don't know if you've uh, been apartment hunting uh, recently. Not that I have. Everything's good with me and Amber. Everybody, calm down. <laughs> but <laughs> I do have friends that have apartments and flats, and rarely does the ground floor have decent ceilings. So you're like, man, this is like a dungeon. It's the only place you can. And then generally, those apartments are taken because people don't want to move furniture up and down. So it's just a tough thing. Uh, I mean, that's always even when I was a private teacher full time. That was always the question I would get: is Hey, we live in an apartment. What should we do? I'm like, uh, rent a practice space somewhere. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's. I think it's an impossible. It's a unicorn. I mean, I the apartment right. I had when I first moved here was above a liquor store because I knew that they would close at whatever eight o'clock and I could at least play a little bit at night. But right. there were some like Sunday afternoons when the guy would be like, "Hey, man, can you uh, stop playing your drums up there?" <laughs> <laughs> You know it's bad if the guy that owns the liquor store is asking you to shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did the same thing in my uh, the first business we owned, the Drum Lab. I was like, dude, it's next to a hot wings place and a nail salon. We're fine. <laughs> and then when they're pounding on the door, I'm like, oh, man, that's, this sucks. It's too bad, but we'll figure it out someday, but not today. Mm, yeah. Well, how about uh, our intro beat from Christoph? Dude, fives? Christopher is no is joke. Fives? What's that? Yeah, Those yeah. Fives, he was dropping right? some heat on some fives. I, I had him at a camp in Rheinsburg, Germany, and then I had him here at a camp. And he's he's an amazing player, an absolute sweetheart. Uh, he blew the students' minds when he was here. Uh, you know, we have our nightly sheds, and mm-hmm. uh, he was what was he playing? Um, maybe squib cakes, and he played it like note for note. Oh, cool. Like, God dang it. Why can't I just have a little bit of that German brain that says, well, I did it because it was there, so you just do it until it's done. Right. I listened to Squib Cakes. I was like, yeah, give me the first four bars. After that, I don't really care. As long as I can play the first four bars, I'm happy. But play the song? That would take me a week. Or a lifetime. Uh, or a lifetime. His handle, yeah. if anyone wants to follow him on Instagram, it is at C-H-R-I-S-H underscore official. At Chris Official. He's, Chris, he's a beast. Good kid. Really good kid. All righty. So let's get into it. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about, buddy. We do. Um, where should we start? Uh, I think we should start with uh, some sad news, but definitely... Celebratory um, news. Celebratory, for sure, for um, who it was. Uh, if you guys don't know, recently the founder of Aquarian Drumheads and honestly one of the most accomplished drummers of all time, Mr. Roy Burns, passed away. And uh, I would say he won the race, right? Of his contemporaries, he was one of the last men standing. Yeah. I mean, aside from Roy Haynes, I mean, there's not many right? not many left. I mean, he had a heck of a life and so many different chapters in that in a life. I mean... For what the past Absolutely. 25 years we, everyone's known him as the guy who invented the super kick <laughs> but <laughs> right right and that's like probably the smallest part of his legacy yeah it's just the most recent but i mean his playing career is out of control
born in 1935. I'm looking. We posted like a re-edited version of a, a big feature story we did with him a couple years ago. So it's in the show notes and it's also on moderndrummer.com. So he was born in 1935. Talk about living through a lot of American history. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. He, he was a child during World War II. Pretty wow. wild. So what was his first big gig? I mean, he, Benny, he played with Benny Goodman in 58. <laughs> No, I mean seriously. When you start going through his jazz history, it's it's out of control. Uh, and you know, I mean, and he was also auditioning for gigs at the time that some of the greatest drummers of all time were trying to audition for gigs, and he was part of that mix. And yeah, does it say in there that he? I think he played for the on the Michael Douglas show uh, for a while. I know he was hooked up with. So when he was a Rogers artist, I can't remember if it was CBS or. I think it was CBS owned Rogers and Fender, uh, but it was one of the TV companies, and they they moved him from New York to Los Angeles. That's how he got relocated. Uh, they and back in those days, I mean, musicians were not a dime a dozen. It was a very famous job. It was a very well respected job to be a professional musician. So there was a lot more money being put into it, uh, especially if a TV company owns your drum company or your guitar company. And uh, and so then he ended up in Los Angeles uh, being relocated and doing TV stuff and everything else in L.A. And it's just an incredible story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of impossible for us to even go through his his history. I didn't even know he wrote a drum book called Finger Control in 1960. I have not seen that book. Do you have a copy of that book? <laughs> I'm sure I do. At some point, Roy sent me everything that he ever wrote. I mean, you know, I it's it's weird. There's a huge connection between Roy Burns, myself, and Modern Drummer that this podcast wouldn't be happening without Roy Burns because you and I wouldn't probably have known each other. Uh, I was a private drum instructor owning the drum lab. That was like the only thing I had. I was done touring. I had no cool credits to my name and Roy just called me up out of the blue and said hey we want to do an ad with you and I'm thinking like a thumbnail I've, I've never yeah. been in the pages of modern drummer magazine that's a, that was my bible and I said oh okay um what for and he said uh we just think that you are on on to something with this YouTube thing and with doing the private lessons and we just want to celebrate you as an educator. And I said, okay. And then they said, it's going to be a full page ad. We're going to run it in four months of modern drummer. And I had never, I'd, I'd been getting modern drummer since I was a kid. I'd never seen a private drum teacher in a full page ad before. So I was like, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. <laughs> and, and that was, that was like the beginning of Roy really taking a personal interest in my life and in my career and pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to be a better educator, to be a more, compassionate educator uh teaching me that empathy was going to be my biggest skill set all those things were came from roy burns and you know having that influence in my life and having that person that by the way we should also mention he started drum clinics like yeah right yeah we haven't that's got a to big that. deal yeah exactly um so there's so much of my career that would never have happened if roy burns didn't exist and do what he did and so yeah so so anyways, when that ad came out in Modern Drummer, and this is at a time where everyone's reading magazines and the only way they know about the world is through a magazine, 
I mean, everyone just kind of took me seriously all of a sudden. Like, uh, why are you in a in an ad? What's going on? I'm like, nothing's going on. Like, I'm literally just I've got my JVC camcorder for eighty five dollars, and I'm making videos and putting them on this new website called YouTube. And Roy thinks it's cool. Uh, so, so yeah, he was he was amazing. I think the other thing that we should talk about is how many people have the exact same same story, which is, yeah, I was a kid working at a music store. We had a problem with an Aquarian head, and Roy Burns called us personally. Yeah, that's true. You know, he did that, that, that happened like every time. There you go. <laughs> that, everyone has that story. Yeah, Roy Burns called me, and then he sent me out a set of heads, and then everything was good. And yeah, it was you know, early. Early on, it was one one of the the coatings. I don't know what was happening, but they were like spraying the coating over the collar. Okay, and it was getting stuck to my rim and pulling the coating off. Oh wow! And I just told my the drum shop, and yeah. Roy called him up and sent a whole shipment <laughs> and some of those he sent me some of those sticks that they were making with the plastic yeah. center piece right. whatever that was yeah. called so I have no idea it, I remember these this. out <laughs> you're like that's oh, okay what was funny about those is there you can tell when Roy didn't develop a product himself because I'm like I've seen you play. There's no way you would use these. Like, there's no way you ever broke a pair of sticks in your life. Like, no. But I, that story was so prevalent. Every time I mention Roy Burns to somebody that's played drums for a long time, they always go, you know, I talked to him on the phone once. And I'm like, I'm sure you did. Like, he just he just took an active role. The other thing is, if you've ever been to NAM in the past 20 years, there was Roy at the aquarium booth shaking people's hands, talking to everybody, never taking a break. You never came by the booth and didn't see him. I'm like, do you eat? Yeah, He was just true. there talking yeah. to everybody. And he treated um, everyone and, with the same level. It was kind of, you know, because I was kind of, when I first got this gig and I went to NAM, I was, you know, I was definitely kind of staying, laying low. I didn't want to interject in the old guard and stuff. But he would come right up to our booth because they were right across from us that year. Right. And just start talking to me. I had no idea who I was, and then he never forgot my name after that. It was really, wow. really interesting. And he did that with everybody. It was it was really wow. – I think everyone has that same story too. Like, Roy always treated me like an equal, never like I'm the expert and you're the new kid. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and when I got the news that he had passed, um, I don't know. I, I Maybe I just don't – know how to properly handle death because i handle it uh decently it it just doesn't really affect me if anything i I just immediately go into this mode of remembering everything that was great about that person all of my great experiences and with roy it was just like wow man like now that i'm actually reflecting on it i I just can't believe how much of an effect he had on my life and the other thing is he had an effect by being the president of aquarian that trickled down to how his employees treated other people and so my rep Chris Brady, who, by the way, will be here tomorrow. Uh, Aquarian's flying in tomorrow. We unfortunately we had booked this thing months ago to uh, do a whole f- uh, documentary, uh, anyways, on something else. But they'll be here tomorrow. But Chris Brady always treated me with the same type of respect that Roy did. But it's a trickle down effect, you know. And, yeah, I saw I saw Chris at the Roland event, and he was you know as positive and supportive as always. And it looks like he's gotten himself into really good shape. So you have to uh, find yeah, out some he, secrets. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah, so he went to – well, I don't want to spill the beans uh, too much because we talk a lot. But he went to a one cheat day a week thing. Other than that, he's off of refined sugars and everything. Uh, and he's just putting in some serious power walking like uh, every single day. He's not – I mean nothing crazy. He's just really watching what he's eating and – 
The thing is, getting from good shape to great shape is tough. You have to go hardcore, hardcore, hardcore. Getting from bad shape to good shape is not that tough. You you make some quick changes in your diet and bring in some exercise and all of that extra stuff will will kind of come off. It's that once you get to like, hey man, you're in good shape and you're like, yeah, now I'm going to go for it. It's like, uh, good yeah. luck, bro. Yeah. That's it. your doubles are at 230. Good luck getting to 235. You're stuck, man. Yep. You're plateaued. That's where so, the yeah. uh, genetics and everything starts to really come into play. I mm-hmm. think. <laughs> oh God, it's like my wife. She does. She like she lifts something out of the car, and I'm like, I think your bicep just got bigger. How how are you that genetically modified to gain muscle and never gain fat, jerk? <sighs> All right, pizza. So back okay. to Roy. To clarify, he was on the the Merv Griffin show. I don't know if that's what you said. Ah. But- the that maybe that maybe that's what it was. And then in 1965 was when Rogers invited him to England to do some drum clinics. So he had to make yeah. a decision: do I leave the show or do I become a drum clinician? And he took the plunge. Wow! Again, I how mean, many people would do that? I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> well, especially if there's no one for you to look at and say, "No, it clearly worked out for." You know, David Michael Weckl. Like, that's <laughs> right. not his middle name. But I mean, that's, that is, there's nothing to say it's going to go well for you. And to do that, no. And just know, like, okay, I'm leaving this safe gig with great pay just so that I can probably lose money, but educate people and inform people and spend time with drummers. That uh, just speaks everything to who Roy really was. Yeah. Excuse me, here's another tidbit. So he did that for a while, but he maintained kind of being a professional drummer mostly. But then in 1968, um, Rogers essentially offered him a full-time salary to just be a clinician. So that has to be the first time anyone was a professional clinician. Has to be. Wow. i got to talk to Gretch. <laughs> Can I get a salary, please? <laughs> yeah, but what, I mean, this is 1968. What do you think his salary was? Two thousand dollars? I don't. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I just want to, you know, I want to walk into the shop with the boys, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, there's Mike, oh, the professional man. clinician." I'm kind of <laughs> like, ah, if I can, I'll swing through the shop and do some rolls. Uh, but that that's amazing. I mean, that's yeah. like yeah. I said, uh, that opened the door for so many other drummers. Yeah, and he was working it. He was he was touring two weeks out of a, every month, giving clinics all around the world in the in the late sixties wow. and seventies. That's that's pretty impressive, and that's pretty that's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know what it's like to do one clinic in a yeah. month where it's like you you have you have the clinic, the prep, and all that, whatever, and and you can assume. At this time, Roy was not playing to tracks. You know, that's our safety net. I don't think he hooked up a record player and, and just jammed to tracks. So, so he's out there doing his thing, soloing and whatnot. But you know that the work is not the clinic. The work is the two hours the second the clinic stops because that's when everyone runs up with their deep questions. It's their first time meeting you, first yeah. time shaking your hand. And you really have to energy-wise beyond for that because this is their only moment they're ever going to spend with you most likely so you have to give them your all and uh yeah to do that for that kind of time oof. so uh it's pretty awesome how did you hear about aquarian drum heads oh well i worked at a i worked at a drum shop that carried aquarium when i was 17 okay so yeah so in 94 i got my first job at a drum shop 
and we had this the typical thing we had this huge line of remo this huge line of evans uh maybe evans or no maybe it was even attack at the time and then uh and then we had a few aquarians and it was funny the the drummers that worked in the shop preferred the aquarian heads so that's kind of i was like wow i've never even heard of these and then what happened as far as my endorsement was when i got my record deal my producer the my first producer uh he just said uh, but uh a side note never mind um anyways <laughs> he he just said tell me which companies you'd like to play for and i'll make some calls for you and so i listed out drum company cymbal company stick company and then the head company i listed was aquarian and that was it and then chris brady i think if i think he either called me or came down and then that's how the whole thing started but roy only knew me for the first few years as a touring drummer mm-hmm. and then when he started seeing the youtube videos in like 2006 that's when he got involved in my life and in the uh between like 2000 and 2006 i was studying with pete magadini and pete and roy were really close so pete would call roy and say hey i'm teaching this kid he's already an aquarian artist but he's starting to lean towards being a teacher and he reminds me a lot of you as far as your passion for education and uh so that's kind of how everything came together nice very cool so apparently his last public performance was at the modern drummer festival when it was him and Modern drummer founder Ron Spagnardi and Vic Firth. Don Lombardi. Don Lombardi and uh, Herb Brockstein from Promark. Brockstein. Yeah. From Promark. Pretty, yeah. pretty epic. I re- I've, and I remember, too, like I, that was my first time seeing Roy play. And I was like, oh. First and last. <laughs> wait, that dude? That dude can drop some heat? Uh, yeah, he, it was it was great. Um, that was a really fun thing, seeing those guys play yeah. and seeing their – in a positive way, seeing their competitive juices going and they're kind of, I'm like, this is crazy. These old cats are shedding, literally (laughs) shedding. Um, And I I think that that, you know, is really cool because you think back to like uh, Buddy versus Gene and all that kind of stuff and Buddy and Max and and it's like, this stuff's been, this shed thing's been going on for a while. Yeah. It didn't didn't start with YouTube, you know. (laughs) Um, But seeing those guys throw down was really cool. I I, I thought that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that performance. Mr. Roy Burns of Aquarian Accessories.
he's an amazing. He was an amazing person, and I will miss him dearly. The drum industry will miss him for sure. But the great thing is, he has put his stamp on the entire industry and the world, and we are all better for him. So, absolutely. Uh, do yourself a favor and research some Roy Burns. All right, let's get into some education. Roy's favorite topic. Well, not 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 polyrhythms, but uh, <laughs> education. So uh, this is Introduction to Polyrhythms, right? Yes, it is. It's the uh, June 2018 Rock Perspective article by Aaron Edgar, and he started a new little mini-series on how to use how to play polyrhythms within grooves, which is something that I think we might have skipped over when we did our original how to learn polyrhythms discussion. Right. Like we just kind of talked about it on paper or just hand, you know, on a pad, but he is giving you, Oh, what we got 14 different examples of, of grooves that have the polyrhythm stated very deliberately in it. And I thought it was a cool concept that I, I think I might play polyrhythms this way, but I never thought about practicing this way. Hmm. So I'll give you example one. So to play four against three, he's playing quarter notes with the bass drum, sixteenths with the hi-hat, and then hitting every third sixteenth on the snare. And that gives you four in the hand and then three in the foot. Yep. And if you would flip it and have it be the other way, so the... um, Where is that one? So that would be down in example... Four, where you're now you're thinking of it as in triplets, so you're playing triplets ah, with the yeah. hi hat, quarter notes with the foot, and every fourth note with the snare. That becomes three over four. Right, and I think, like you said, these and when it's kind of a weird thing. We all think of as soon as we hear the word grooves, we assume snare has to be on two and four. Yeah, but that's not the case, and so these are not the type of grooves that are going to give you this like instant backbeat. And then there's some weird polyrhythm over the top of it. It's using the groove setting, at least in my mind, that's how I see it. It's using the groove setting and the groove position to feel the math of the polyrhythm on the drum set rather than on the pad or in your head. Right. Once you get your subdivision going. So in number one, it's 16th notes and you have this one E and a two E and a three E and a, then you put in the bass drum on all the downbeats, one E and a, two E and a, three E and a. And then you bring in that snare on every third, sixteenth note, one E and a, two E and a, three E and a. Eventually, if you can get that math and those numbers to go away and be doing this and start thinking of that left hand as the actual pulse, one, oh boy, one, two, three, <laughs> four, one, two, three, four, one, two, Three, four, one, two, three. Feeling that is it. I mean, to me, I think this is an easier way to learn the polyrhythms, whether it be four over three, uh, five over four, doesn't matter, or four over five. I think that this solidifies it in your brain because you have the subdivision there. It's really hard to do this without that overriding subdivision. Yeah, and I think being in a comfortable position, you know, with your hand on the hi hat, I agree. Yeah, it's kind of everything's familiar except for the one limb is doing something unfamiliar. What right. what Aaron doesn't talk about, maybe he does in the text, I don't remember, but I would play like that first example. So the snare drum is playing every third sixteenth. I would mm-hmm. play that at the end of a four bar phrase. So I'd play like a groove in three four for three bars, and then play that as like the fill, quote unquote. Yeah, that'd be a way yeah, for me I to think, kind of because I often think of like fills are where I would do this sort of thing, like use odd groupings or something. Agreed. Yeah, 
Well, and also, too, this is also where maybe your guitar player or your keyboard player actually does it as well, where they do this little run of Groovings of Three. So it's really nice to have this in your arsenal to be able to play. But if you look at the article, if you get rid of the hi-hat part, that's what polyrhythms actually look like when you read them by themselves. It's really hard to... they. The notes almost look like they're floating in time. Yeah, it's really hard to grid them up in your mind, and I really think that it's such a simple thing. But Aaron kind of knocked it out of the park by putting in the subdivision on top of it, and then you go, "Oh, okay. Well, they're not showing up in weird places. I mean, they're showing up on six on a sixteenth note grid or an eighth note triplet grid. Um, he's got sixteenth note triplets in here. Yeah, it kind of goes through different yeah. polyrhythms, like six over five, six over seven. He goes, he goes pretty, which all sounds like pretty advanced. But when you look at it, he's just playing sextuplets and hitting every fifth note or every seventh note while keeping the quarter note going with the foot. That's where it starts: is that quarter note with the foot, and then thinking in terms. And you and I have discussed this on the podcast before. Drummers need to understand the difference between groupings and subdivisions. They're not the same thing. When somebody says fives, it doesn't mean quintuplets. When somebody says threes, it doesn't mean triplets. Mm. You have to have a subdivision first. Let's say it's 16th notes. Yes, naturally we feel those in groups of four, but there's no reason that you have to hit every fourth one. You can hit every fifth one, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a five E and a one E and a two E. And then you have that, but they're still 16th notes. They're not quintuplets. And so by putting this grid on top of it it just eases your mind like when i'm looking at number three okay i've got eighth note triplets and i've got two beats worth one and uh two and uh and then i've got my left hand is playing every other one one and uh two and uh one and uh two and uh then my bass drum's playing the quarter notes oh well that's going to give me a two over three polyrhythm and that's a great thing to know to okay i've got that so that would be three there we o- go. That'd be three over two. Like I said, a three over two polyrhythm. <laughs> so we decided last time that the subdivision becomes the top number, right? So if the subdivision is sixteenth notes, then it would be a four over three. Uh, <laughs> that was a great sound. <laughs> well, I think what I don't know. Did we codify it like that? I think of what whatever's your pulse. That's the that's the under, whatever your pulse is. So if your bass drum okay. is playing five notes, and it's something over five. If your bass drum is playing three notes, and it's something over three. Okay. Right? So let's is that say, kind of what so we're saying? This, Same thing? Yeah. So we've got – I'm trying to think. I remember we came up with our own solution for somebody saying, how do I do – a nine over four. Oh and yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the subdivision – yes. The subdivision is the top number. Right. So if it's six okay. over four, it'll be sextuplets, and you play every sixth note, and that'll give you six oh. over four. Yeah, and exactly. And you would play every sixth note on the bass drum, which would give you your quarter note pulse, and then you'd play every fourth note with, in this case, your left hand. And what's confusing is now the left hand is actually the six, and right. the bass drum is the four. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. Just make it a sound. It's art, people. Why does it have to be so difficult? Oh, Thanks, man. Pete Magadini, for breaking this one down we're, for all of us. We were doing so well, and it just totally went off the rails. <laughs> we are crushing it. We can, we can delete all that. Don't even worry about it. We're rocking. So, but I, I think that yeah, okay. visually, so let's, let's, this is a great way to see it. Let's go back yeah. through that. So okay. if you want to figure out 5 over 4, you mm-hmm. write out 
quintuplets, four mm-hmm. groups of five. You put an accent every fourth note, an accent every fifth note. Yes, so one limb will accent every fifth note. That's going to give you your quarter note pulse in this case. It would be your four. Right. Then by accenting every fourth quintuplet, that will that will end up, by the end of the measure, you will have five of those hits. Right. So it'll be a five over four polyrhythm. Right. So what you originally said is correct. Whatever your, your subdivision is, is the top number. Yep. And then, <laughs> so, yeah. And so if you, but... But conversely, if you played a four over five polyrhythm, that is not mathematically the same thing. Then you would have 16th notes. Your bass drum would be playing on every fourth note. Your left hand would be playing every fifth, 16th note. It'd be in five, four, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a five E and a one E and a two E and a three and a four E and a five E and a, that's four over five. That's four over five. Yeah. That's the tricky part. We should probably come back to that idea of two over three versus three over two and six over four versus four over six do you think aaron's at home right now going like (laughs) just shut up i nailed it why do you have to talk about it Uh, (laughs) that's awesome anyway i think these exercises i mean they get pretty tricky by the end of it but if you've never messed around with polyrhythms this kind of makes it as foolproof as possible because even if you can't mentally comprehend it you can just read it you start to hear it and then right it's just there it's kind of built in that that to me has always been the separator or the divide of if you don't hear both of these as a pulse as a possible pulse then you're not really then it's just a rhythm it just happens to have some math behind it mm-hmm. it's not until you decide you know what i could turn that left hand into my new quarter note then and i could modulate i could use implied metric modulation to jump into that that's when i feel like you've mastered that one as a polyrhythm when either one of the two limbs in this case bass drum or left hand playing snare drum could be your actual pulse then it's a polyrhythm um when i hear people play i kind of think that's a rhythm you couldn't just jump into one of those or the other one and have that be your main pulse. Oh, You're just hearing dun duck a dut duck a dut duck a dut dun. You know, and so if you guys ever want a trick, just do a um, so two over three, and just take one of the limbs and make it quieter, and then you can count that out loud. So if my left hand stays loud and my right hand comes down. One two one two one two one two one two three 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 one two one two one two. It's tough stuff, man. It is tough stuff and super usable on your pop gigs. That reminds me, I did a clinic over the weekend, and the whole premise for the clinic was I didn't want to be prepared. I wanted to just experiment and explore ideas on the stage and kind of break down how I practice and discover stuff for myself. And one thing that I was like, oh, I remember practicing this thing. Let me show it to you. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, so no. it's a 12-8, you know, 12-8 pattern, whatever it may okay. be, Afro-Cuban groove or whatever. I used um, Steve Wright clapping music as my pattern. Okay, sure. I was like, all right, so it's a cool idea for phrasing is to be able to hear this as a 16th note bass pattern and also a triplet bass pattern. So if you put the pulse every fourth note, it sounds like 16th notes in 3-4. If you put the pulse every third note, it sounds like triplets or 12-8. Right. And that was cool. And I was like, yeah, but then you can do this. You can actually play both pulses. You know, the bass drum will play the triplets and your left foot will play the quarter notes, Ooh. which 
three, four years ago, I could nail that thing cold. But I was going to say, how'd that go for you? Last weekend, it was like, yeah, so that's something I'll go home and practice, and I'll get back to you later. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun. But you it is a really people... cool thing, I mean, to be oh, able to absolutely. do that. And that's absolutely. not only is it an independence challenge, but it, it literally kind of forces you to, to be able to perceive the same rhythm in different different phrasings, and then it opens up all this you know, mm-hmm. possibilities for fills and stuff. But I definitely fumbled, and it was pretty funny. And I'm okay with it. <laughs> no, I and I guarantee it. It gets you more endeared and closer to the crowd. I've I put up me failing yesterday on Instagram um, as I was trying to work this thing out that I was sure I had. It's just groupings of three going through the grid. And then when I got to the us. My left hand just curled up and tried. It was like a snail just trying to get in its shell. It was like, I don't want to be a part of this. And I was like, you know what? This is what happened. I'm going to just upload it. There was no mics. There was nothing professional. And it blew up. Comment, comment, comment. Thank you. I needed to see this today. I just needed to see this. Um, and then, you know, uh, people identifying with my what I call self-medicated licks, where when you mess up, you just drop oh, the heat on something. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I never let it be more than one bar because like, people are commenting like I do the same thing. But when I get to that part where you threw down, I stay there for 25 minutes. Yeah, I'm like, right. Well, that's why you don't get a lot of work done. I give myself it's it's a drumming curse. I just go son of a skit and then I'm out of it. So all right. Before we get into our gear review, got to take a quick second and thank our sponsor. Yes, thank you, Dream. So they wanted to make sure that we let everyone know that very soon you will be able to get Dream symbols in many more shops in the United States. They just inked a deal with KMC, which is one of the biggest uh, distributors in in the country. So they will be available pretty much anywhere where any other KMC distributed products would be um, I'm going to be going on a limb and say you're probably going to find it pretty much anywhere. And that is starting – Looks like June 15th, but the, you know, the deal's already in place. I guess they're just getting all the orders ready now. I do believe that they're still going to honor all of their previous dealer relationship as well, so it's not like they'll stop appearing if you were able to get them locally. But that's a pretty big deal for them to, not, you know, to hand over the distribution and not have to do it themselves. They can focus more on the products and that side of it. So congratulations to Dream, and if you haven't checked out any of their stuff, you will be able to shortly. So. Thank you, Dream. Awesome. Fantastic. All right, so let's dig into this Roland kit. I don't have one here, so obviously I can't drop in any audio, but I spent all day with it and, you know, got the whole spiel with the guys who designed it and all the ins and outs. So it is the TD-17 series, which will be, from what they said, I believe it'll be replacing the TD-11. So it's a mid-priced series. And there's three configurations, like most of uh, Roland's lineups. There's, you know, the more the more affordable option. There's a mid-price option, and then there's the more the Cadillac version of it. So let me give you the pricings first because I got that directly from them. These will be, I believe, the street price, not the list price. Okay. So the lower uh, price kit is the TD17 KL. That is nine ninety nine ninety nine. The TD17KV is $1199.99, and the TD17KVX is $1599.99. So if oh, wow. you're shopping for an electronic kit, these are in the price range that, that I think it's it's pretty much 
where anyone could really – I mean there's one there I think for just about anyone who would – I mean these are, these are good quality kits. These aren't toys. Um, right. I was kind of shocked. perform with this. Yeah, I was kind of shocked. So I sat down with the developers and, and picked the brains like, well, why would you develop this? What's the point? Like you've got so many kits already. Why, why reinvent the wheel? Right. And so what they did was they actually took some of the new technologies that are only available in the TD50, like super high-end module. Mm-hmm. And put some of that into this module, so you get more of the nuance, more of the realistic response from you know from stroke to stroke. So you don't get any machine gunning, and it also kind of blends a little bit better. Um, so you know, it's new, more nuanced playability, which you can't really right. get f- from kits in this price point. Um, they redesigned the rim, so it's actually like replicates the height of an actual rim on a snare drum. Yeah, I saw that. And, it, and it's not as big and round as normal. It, it's like it's almost kind of sharp, like yeah. a rim would be. It, yeah, it looks it looks like a rim. Um, what else do they do? The, the kick drum is more kind of stable and solid. It's a whole new brain, right? Yeah, the brain is. You I've know, never seen this brain. Yep, new brain. They, I mean, they took some of the sounds they already had, but they added a whole lot of new things. There's Bluetooth technology, so you can. You can stream videos and audio straight to it and play along with it, which is which new. Which is awesome. That's, yeah. that's only available awesome. in the middle and upper. The, the lower price one okay. doesn't have Bluetooth. That's how they were able to cut some of that. Um, you could load your own samples into it, which is not something that Roland has been open to very often in the past, which is super cool. It's got um, it's got a lot of like, like teaching features because they're kind of gearing us towards students, hobbyists, semi-pros teachers uh, with the goal of being this is a this is a kit that kind of gets you more obsessed with drumming you know ready to go to the next step to be a professional Mm -hmm. or semi-pro but i think you could you could get away with having this kit be your your only electronic kit even if you're going to gig with it maybe not tour with it but um they were telling me that some professional guys have gotten these kits to have them backstage they're easy to kind of transport oh wow so I can totally than, see that. Yeah, rather than have a practice pad kit. Um, so yeah, there's cool, you know, there's like groove time check functions, click things. So, uh, quick question for you, <clears throat> since you're much more familiar with Roland products than I am. Is it have they ever had a brain even in their upper end stuff that had EQ features like bass, treble, ambience? Oh yeah, I've never seen that. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they've had That's that cool. for a while. They, I think. Maybe it was the TD twenty. I don't remember which one, but they were you were able to kind of adjust the mic placements and the room size and all of that kind of stuff. But in the brain, I'm, I just haven't seen it as an actual knob that where I don't have to dig into the brain. This is like bass and treble are knobs. Oh yeah, I don't know if they were knobs. They were definitely f- features within it before. But right, yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty <clears throat> normal. This is just I, I just think that's a really cool function because. Maybe you throw on your in ears; it's a different sound than you had when you had your headphones. Maybe you plug into a speaker; it's yeah, a different, yeah. you know, maybe the speaker has no low end. You want to crank it up. I think that's really cool to have it that quick and not have to. I mean, that's honestly one of the downfalls of e kits for people that use it as a practice device is they're not on them enough to know the brains. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I know this can do what I want it to do, but I don't want to spend an hour figuring out how to get it to do what I want it to do. Right, yeah. So I just won't do it. And when you take something like that where you know, yeah, I'm sure after hitting 20 shift corrects and other buttons, I can get to the EQ of the snare drum. Just to have treble on top of the brain as a knob is 
I think that's really cool. Yeah. So the the KVX, which is the the highest end, has all mesh pads. You know, the three toms, the, the big snare drum. I think it's a twelve inch snare drum, mm. and it has the the more high end hi hat, which actually goes on a regular stand. It feels more like mm-hmm. real cymbals. It yeah. actually moves. They did say that they redesigned the hi hat to be lighter, so it's not as kind of clunky as the one before. The TD seventeen KV doesn't have that hi hat. It has a, like the stable you know, non-moving hi-hat with the remote pedal. Uh, still has the mesh pads and the 12-inch snare. And then nice. the lower one, the KVL, does not have the mesh toms. So it's got the... The KVL does, but the KL doesn't. So the TD-17K-L has rubber pads and a mesh head... Yeah, right. yeah. One of these is not. I think one of these is not available in the. Yes. Yeah, so the KVL I don't think is available in the U.S. Right. The KL, which is the lower one, has three rubber pads for the toms. It has a smaller snare pad, which is I think eight inches. So it's a more compact kit, and also has the the non-moving hi hat. So mm. I think that would be the one, maybe for students, but. I think most people will enjoy the mid-priced one, the, the KV. Yeah. It's got all the features, the Bluetooth features, the mesh pads, the the bigger snare drum pad. Really, the only thing that I'd see that would be an advantage with the other one is the hi-hat. So if right. you really want a moving hi-hat, you know. But, yeah, that mid I will say <clears throat> on the sound demos, one thing that really blew me away uh, when Anika was playing it was – the articulation of the hi-hat to me hi-hats are where i always know that i'm on an electric kit yep because it's it's just hard to get them right there's they very rarely recognize any tension in your foot it's like oh this is closed and this is open and that was the side yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and so it just doesn't have a very real feel and she was you know ripping some chops on the hi-hat alone and i really could hear some some differences in each stroke. It was pretty cool. And I didn't hear any misfires. Like every stroke she played came out crystal clear. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of killing it on the, as close to real as you can get on an electronic kit kind of experience. Mm. Um, the cymbals had some real nice playability. The high, uh, the snare drum really kind of blew me away as far as tracking every diddle and every like grace note. They said they moved the sensor closer to the bottom of the pad. So you don't get that hot spot in the middle. If you oh, notice okay. on some pads, when yeah, you get to yeah, the center yeah. of the pad, it's like a machine gun goes off. Yep. So they moved it, so you get kind of a more nuanced snare drum response. So anyway, cool. I think it's going to be it's going to be a game changer for a lot of people. So check out the Roland TD17. They kind of blitz the internet after that event. So there's there's an archive live stream of the event, and there's tons of video content of Annika Nillis demo in it. Um, check it out. It should be available in every dealer as of now. Awesome. All right, let's get into some listener questions. Oh, yeah. Listener questions. Nice batch for us. <laughs> okay, first question comes from Andrew. What do you ask for or what do you need as far as scratch tracks to be able to successfully write and record drum tracks in your home studio? For example, if a singer-songwriter doesn't have a regular band but wants a full band album, how would you collaborate, get direction, or get the right vibe to them? Um from what vibe to them what they're looking for in your drum writing and tracking essentially the question is what do you need to get from the (laughs) artist in order to perform a good drum track (laughs) Uh, yeah 
as much as you can, Sorry. whatever it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> dude, bro, you're on fire. For, for what you've been through, wait till I get back from my Asia trip. I don't even know how we're going to do the podcast from Seoul, South Korea, but we'll figure it out. Um, so I'm proud of you because I know it's going to be rough for me. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, you're trying to get anything you can to get you closer to the vibe. Anything, whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah, and and maybe that's hopefully that's in the form of audio. Uh, I mean, what happens when you do this stuff? Uh, it runs the gamut, and I got to say that I'm not. I don't necessarily have too much of a preference. What I don't like is an extremely overproduced demo where everything is gridded out and I have no sense of like where where's the human vibe in here. Like if okay. everything is so tight and airtight and there's no room for me to do anything, that's usually the least gratifying. I end up having to quantize the track and it's like why why bother? Uh on the converse, I've had I just did a record for an old friend of mine who literally recorded the demos in his with like an acoustic guitar in his bathroom and an iPhone and just gave me the songs. He did it to a click track at least, but right, which was great because then it was totally up to me to kind of set the vibe with the sound and the energy. Uh, so that just involved a conversation like, do you want this to rock or do you want this to be kind of darker and more moody? Is there going to be acoustic guitar? Are you going to put electrics? So those are conversations I have. Um, but yeah, I think ideally, and again, this is another lesson that Steve Jordan kind of dropped on me when I asked him about this very thing. I was like, what do you what do you do when you know everything in the demo is going to be replaced? He said that sh- you should never have that be the case. You know, you want to play to what you want to play the final track as, as often as possible or as much of what's going to be in the final track. Uh, I think realistically, that's just not the way it works anymore. But I can see right. his point. Like, if you're kind of vibing with the demo bass part, and then they they're just going to replace it, then the little little bits of push and pull that you had in there are going to sound really right. bad, and you're going to have to grit it out. Yeah. So I would almost rather have a really sketchy zero rhythmic demo, just an acoustic guitar or something, than I can play to the click or I can record a loop and play to it. But it runs the gamut. I think I think the big thing for me is just the conversation. Do you want the rock? Do you want yeah. it to be more mellow? Do you want it to be more electronic or loop bass? Right. And then just go from there. Yeah. Finding those adjectives that the singer-songwriter can connect to. Yeah, I often ask for like references. Like give me a band that you mm-hmm. want this to sound like. Is this Nirvana? Yep. Is this Tom Petty? Where are we going with this? Right. That uh, makes sense. Um, okay. Here's one from uh, – this one's from – gosh, how do you pronounce this? Yevus from – Germany? Yevus? Or is it Yevus? <laughs> Either way, I'm so happy that this part of our podcast is out of my hands. Why? You just say it, and then I get to jump in and give an answer. Well, it even says pronunciation Yevus, but it's Y-A-V-U-Z from Germany. So I hope I yeah, got that right. So I have a specific question about how you guys get the attention on the gig so the listeners slash crowd is fully focused on the music says, with my band, we've been playing for five years in different different places, but I often realize that half of the crowd is focused on talking or other things and not on us while we're playing. <laughs> um, so he says... Yeah, welcome to drumming, bro. <laughs> welcome to modern music making. Yeah, that's, that's tough. I, I think you have to understand what you're doing as a service and why you're doing it. If you're playing at places where people came to mingle, they came to hang out, they came to meet other people, and you are in the background, the more 
the more, I guess, advanced and nuanced you get, the more you're actually bothering them. And they're not, they didn't come. Now, that's very different than, let's say, a band like Maroon 5, where everyone turned up specifically to see Maroon 5. Yep. They weren't like, hey, let's go get a drink at the arena tonight. <laughs> I think there's a band playing. So clearly they're going to focus on Maroon 5 or whoever it is or Dream Theater. Nobody says, let's go to the Dream Theater show and get a drink tonight. <laughs> like they go there and they face forward and they stare the whole time. Uh, and I'm sure Dream Theater is like, hilarious. could you guys just relax a little? And it's like, no, we have to stare at you the whole time because you're Dream Theater. So I think understanding the situation you're in is important uh, because – Obviously, I don't expect anyone to know that drumming is my profession if I'm covering a buddy for a wedding gig. I'm there to be to blend into the background and make people dance and have fun. Um, so, so yeah, that can be tough. I mean, you got to. I mean, look at what's happening in even major artists. They're having to force concert goers to put their cell phones in a in a bag so they're not distracted during the show. I mean, and this is Jack White, and I mean, these are like world. Touring Foo Fighters and these are expensive, expensive tickets, and they (laughs) still just choose to look down. Yeah, they're just too worried about checking, you know, posting selfies and stuff. So I think it's just a reflection of modern society and just how distracted we are. I don't think I've played a gig in the past few years where it wasn't essentially background music, even if we were like the featured band. There's still, it's still not. People just don't. In my experience, they just don't absorb music as the focal point very often anymore and it's, it's and it's genre based when you go to a jazz club and see a great yeah, jazz different. artist no one talks no that's phones different. are out yeah and they even have a nice announcement where it's like please put your phones away and you as the audience member are hoping everyone's listening because you're like yeah if that phone rings while wex is taking his solo i'm gonna be <laughs> pretty pissed off like i am zeroed in so i think it's also a genre thing you know yeah i mean even when Vinny was ripping a rolling kit tuesday night it still was still people I mean, it was just people constantly in and out the door, talking, yelling, laughing. I mean, going to the bar. And it's like, dude, Vinny uh, Cayuta's in there doing something that I've never heard him do before. Whether yeah. you like it or not, like, can we just pay it doesn't attention? doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a moment that I'll talk about five years from now once I get it. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more quick one here. This one's from Linda. It says... I've only been playing the drums for a little over two years. I play one night a week with two guitarists. It's completely improvised and mostly rock. If I start off and they are playing to me, it's usually fine. But if one of them starts off and I have to come up with what to play to go along with them, I sometimes have a hard time. It usually winds up being super simple. This is especially true if the rhythm rhythm player isn't there. How can I practice this skill? Uh, they don't want to learn songs, but can you recommend some videos or books? Ooh, that one doesn't really work out too well for books, um, at least that I know of. As far as not if you only plan for two years, music. yeah, I would say like Juliana's book or Yost Nichols' Groove book, but those are those are advanced level books. Yeah, I agree. Um, and 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 that's a, another tough thing. In your first ten years of drumming, one of the worst things you can do is take your book material to the jam. Because it'll be obvious. Everyone will know. Um, I'm actually doing a lesson on that tomorrow. The tomorrow's live lesson is practical applications for the things you learned on my website. Meaning (laughs) stop taking this one measure fill that I showed you and playing it at a gig. That is a bad idea. That's pretty bad. I play like four notes of that. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) I play four notes of that. I don't play it like that. But you have to play like that to get it down into your vocabulary. So, Linda, first of all, just – 
take it easy on yourself and realize that one to two years of drumming is like literally learning your first baby word. You know, you just, I mean, that's like so the beginning of this journey. And one of the things you also have to come to terms with is a lot of times you do play the same beat in every song. Just subtle variations, a ghost note here, an extra kick here. And if there's no bass player there and there's no rhythm guitar player, then you're going to have to be the foundation rhythm section. You're going to have to be the one with the consistent kick pattern, the consistent low end that's filling in low frequencies, but also filling in a consistent rhythm. Having that snare on two and four, as boring as it may be, gives your guitar player a foundation to, to play on top of. Yeah, and you need you need millions of repetitions of doing that before I think yes. you even feel confident to displace an accent here or there. I mean, right. think about the entire ACDC catalog. It's the same, right. essentially the same beat with a few different yeah, accents just here and there. And different tempos. But I, I think we all go through that. When you get in your first band, you realize that's our ninth song with this beat. It's like, yeah, listen to the radio. They all have that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. All of them. Of all time, you know? And, and that, then... Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably default for for most of us. The first time we play with someone or make up something, it's kind of our responsibility to just keep it simple. If you go straight out of the gates trying to like play something complicated, then I think it's all like automatically you're trying to talk over someone rather than have an actual conversation with them. You yeah. know, I think it's I just think our you, job. It also is a thing where. If you're playing a beat that you can currently play, you feel in the first few years like you're not growing because you don't realize that you you won't be able to play that beat even 20 years from now as well as Steve Jordan or whoever that you look up to. So even though I may be on the gig playing you know, that basic pop beat, while I'm on that gig, I'm knowing that the hi-hat could be more subtle. I'm knowing that the kick yeah. drum could be more locked in. So... It, you still never have it down. So, Linda, just keep doing what you're doing, girl, and you got this. All right, you ready for pick of the week? Yep, and I have mine. I just had to look over my shoulder to see what the model is. Uh, it's the it's like it's like a Roland show. They should have sponsored this episode, but I just got my hands on their new drum triggers: the RT mm. 30HR and the RT 30K. So, the RT 30K is obviously for the kick drum, and the 30HR is the dual trigger for like head and rim uh, okay i've been using the old version of the Roland triggers for years and they've held up great but they're kind of bulky uh you know they kind of stick off the hoop a good bit these are way more streamlined and flat oh cool and they come with their own nice little boxes so i don't you have to worry about them getting messed up in the case so they've been kind of flawless so that's my pick of the week um if you're looking to get in the triggers yeah it's the do you know how do you know what their price range is they're not that expensive. Um, let me look it up. I don't remember what I paid. 90 bucks for the snare drum trigger. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And you can find it cheaper. I think I got it for around 70 bucks. And the kick drum is is about the same. So, they, you know, they list brand new for like 90 bucks. And cool. I think they'll last you years. You don't have to do anything to kind of – the old ones you had to kind of set the uh, sensor height each time you installed it. This one you just stick it on the hoop, clamp it down, and it doesn't go anywhere, and it works kind of flawless nice that's awesome uh well my pick of the week is <clears throat> in the same price bracket this is 58 dollars, and this is called the aperture and i'm not saying aperture incorrectly it's a-p-u-t-u-r-e aperture amaran al i don't even want to bore you with it alh198 and this is a, 
an amazing compact. I'm showing it to Mike right now. An amazingly compact LED light. Oh, that's bright. That I can't even explain how bright this thing is. <laughs> it. If you took one of the headlamps off of your car and then just put it in a little handheld box, that's how bright <laughs> this thing is. But it does have. Uh, it does have an adjustment knob, so it can also be not overly bright. Uh, so when you're starting to just take your phone anywhere or when you're just filming content, I know Mike hates that word, but when you're filming new material. Videos. <laughs> videos. There you go. When you're making videos with your phone or a regular camera or whatever, and maybe it's nighttime, it's nice just to have a little compact LED light. But the the thing with LEDs is when you buy those cheap ones at Target or whatever, they have a really low CRI. And, and this has a CRI of 96. So, what does that mean? Uh, so CRI is color rendering index. And it means it is the actual rating from 0% to 100% of how well a, a fake light source or an artificial light source, when it Whatever it hits, how well does that reflect the actual color that the human eye sees? So the human eye sees at a CRI of 100%. And so when you have cheap LEDs, they might have a CRI of 70%. So it's reflecting back to you 70% of the actual color. Mm. That's what's reflecting to the camera. So the camera, all of a sudden, your skin's really green or whatever. If you have a, a high CRI, then the camera will see that thing that the light is hitting the way your eye is seeing it. And it's it's we think that that's just normal. Trust me, it's not. Every yeah. light bulb has its own temperature to it. Yeah. And yeah. so having yeah. a high <laughs> CRI rating is extremely important. Uh, so yeah. So this is called the Aperture Amaron. This thing is a tank of a light. It's amazing. It comes with a, a horseshoe mount uh, or a shoe mount. Excuse me, not a horseshoe mount. A shoe mount to put on top of your camera, or you can just hold it. And what I'm using it for is if I'm shooting a video and I've got a big softbox light on me and I'm talking to the camera. I'll just put this maybe on my snare wall behind me shooting up, and it just gives something in the background a little bit of depth, a little bit of dimension. Hmm. But I also will take this with me when I go to Ireland uh, later this year. And knowing that when it's 7 p.m. and the sun has gone down, if I want to maybe talk to one of the students and film it real quick, I've got this light that we could shoot from anywhere. I could put this out in the middle of a field and have somebody stand over the top of it and get some really dramatic lighting. It also has these little plates um, – that I'm pulling off now, so you can ha- so you can actually diffuse it, and there's an orange plate that you can put on it. So this can be uh, a warm light or a cool light, however you want it to be. So honestly, for sixty bucks, just buy it, throw it in your backpack. If you're somebody that films a lot of videos, and you'll be set. It's great. So how far away from your face do you place it? With this, it it depends. If I have it really well, I don't. My webcam's already overexposed, anyways, but. Um, it, it just really depends on how much light you need. And one of the things that I think people should really do if they can is put up their iPhone or whatever you film yourself with that you can actually monitor yourself with. So I or your phone and reverse it. So it's in selfie mode, put that in front of you, hold it in front of you, and then just take a light like this or any light that you can find that you can hold in your hand and move it around your face and just pay attention to what's happening. If you put it on the side of your face, that's going to at a 45 degree angle, that's a very dramatic look, but it still looks more natural than the uh the light being completely on the side of your face. If you hold it above you, you don't you might not realize it, but you're casting shadows from your eyebrows onto your lower eyes, from your nose onto your lower lip and you're getting you're looking tired. If you put it mm. uh right in front of you, you would think like that's got to be the best place to put it. That is the most boring 
light look ever is when there's no shadows at all because the light's right in front of you. So just playing around with this stuff, it's uh, it's really helpful. As you can tell, I'm going as deep as I can into this stuff because I just know that it's – I just don't see videos slowing down anytime soon and I know that it's going to be a huge part of my business moving forward. So unless I'm going to hire somebody, I'm going to have to learn how to do it on my own. Yeah, I mean that, – and that, that's affordability is crazy. I mean it wasn't that long ago the LED lights were super expensive. Yeah, especially and, – and some of my favorite cinematographers that I'm obsessing over on YouTube, they use all of this company's lighting products. This is like – it's not high-end to the level that you're dealing with movie studio prices where that's you know 500 bucks. It's, it's $60. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, like, and it comes in its own uh, soft case, like own padded soft case. So I can just throw it in my backpack and I'm good to go. So there you go. Those are our picks of the week. Everyone, please, if you can – now I'm not going to skip over our outro guy. We're going to crush some, some Big Al in a second. But if you can, head over onto iTunes or wherever you get this podcast and give us a review and a rating. All that stuff helps other drummers find this podcast, which is why Mike and I started this in the first place. So please do that. We do read, read the reviews, and we appreciate all of them. Let's talk about our outro groove. I'm going to derail you before that. We have to tease no. the fact that we've got some pretty important landmarks for the show coming up, and so we've got some giveaways to announce. So... Uh, I think in about two weeks we'll be ready to give something away. So I'm not going to tell it. you why or what for, but or what's being given away. But you might want to keep listening and tell your friends to listen. It Man. will be a nice little package. So it'll, I think it. I think it'll be in two. It, let's say three weeks. If you're if, but don't miss two weeks from now. <laughs> so definitely <laughs> listen the next two weeks. <laughs> That'll be what episode one forty four. 144, yeah. So the, hopefully that'll, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in that range, that. we're going to be giving away several hundred dollars worth of goodies for sure. All right. Well, now let's talk about Big Al because the dude's going in for us. He's giving us our outro music. Yeah. So he's playing a Craviato Cherry Kit. Cherry is quickly becoming my favorite wood choice. Oh, like man, it can do everything. Screw up everyone out there. They're like, "Oh, honey, I got to put my kid on eBay." <laughs> Dawson said cherry's better than maple. I'm out. I only own one cherry drum, but every time I hear oh. a cherry kit, I mean, it's it's just it's the right thing. But he's also got the three by twelve ANF Rude Boy snare. So it's a Craviato cherry kit ANF three by twelve Rude Boy snare. Bass drum is twenty inches. The toms are twelve fourteen. K Constantinople cymbals. He's going for all the good stuff. Jeez. AKG nice Mike's. budget. Yeah, man. So he's a college professor by day and drummer by night, he says. Big Al. Love it. Love it. Thanks for the <laughs> outro groove, buddy. I guess I'll say goodbye to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. See you next week. <laughs> oh, my God.